yeah, I used to be able to speak pretty good Spanish. Uh, unless I'm listening to reggaeton or something, and all of a sudden I can speak perfect Spanish. Welcome to episode 3 of Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice. I'm your host, Pardeep, and this is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. The goal of these interviews is to have candid, first-person conversations about the role of race, gender, and socioeconomic status in politics, the sciences, and beyond. As you listen to these undocumented experiences, I hope we demonstrate the value of diversity and recognize the inequities that exist in the daily lives of minorities in this country. On this episode, we'll be talking to Adrian Rivera. Adrian received his PhD in cancer biology at UPenn and is currently a science and technology policy fellow at the American Association for the Advancement of Science in DC. Moving to the US in 2014 from Puerto Rico, Adrian ran for city council at large in Philadelphia in 2019, where he was later appointed to commissioner at the Pennsylvania Governor's Advisory Commission on Latino Affairs. As an LGBTQ candidate, a millennial, and importantly, a scientist, we're going to talk with Adrian about barriers and biases he had to overcome and how these first-hand experiences can inform the future of science policy, spotlight racist research, and highlight diversity in STEM. Adrian, I'm happy you're here. Thank you for having me, Pardeep. Um, I do want to start by saying, uh, as a fellow, um, from now on, every time I do any speaking engagement, um, I have to be very clear that the views expressed here in this interview are those of my own and do not represent that of my employer or the fellowship or the AAAS. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. Uh, this whole thing's kind of burgeoning for me as well, uh, trying to figure out, trying to make sure people are free from their conflicts of interest and everything. So thanks for mentioning that. And uh, let's get started. I think it's um, important uh, that as millennials, we, we document these these early wins as young people, because I believe that uh, you know we're at the right age where we'll be leading this country for uh, the next 70 years and our time is now. And there's a lot of things I want to cover and we may not cover them all, such as barriers for LGBTQ candidates, racism in science, and where we go from here, scientists in public office. But, but first I want to start with you and your background. Um, uh, I read a lot about your, your background in several and many articles that have been released over the few or over the past few years. Uh, but instead of sort of reiterating that, re- reiterating these articles, um, I'm wondering if you could take us back to uh, to, to 2014 uh, when you started grad school. Uh, I anticipate that when you landed at UPenn and started your program and got to know the faculty, uh, maybe you slowly realized that there weren't a lot of people like you. I mean, nearly um, nearly 70% of PhD holders in the U.S. in 2017 were white, according to the National Science Foundation. And, and this is the most recent data I can find. Uh, and without going too much uh, off on a tangent, uh, universities have a long history of, of, of bias admissions. So, you know, when you, cro- when you cross-section that with somebody like you, who's a person of color, LGBTQ, and who's born and raised in Puerto Rico, 
you start to feel more and more like an N of one. And this multifaceted identity, I think, is uh, one of your greatest strengths. So can you describe uh, maybe in your formative years uh, how this identity has contributed to how you conducted your research? Um, uh, we know that the lack of diversity in STEM is cross-cutting from grad admissions all the way to clinical trials. And oftentimes, disproportionate health outcomes is blamed on the lack of black and brown scientists doing the work. So is this something uh, you think you can relate to? And if so, um, how has your identity or upbringing influenced your research interests? I guess when, when I arrived to Philly in 2014, um, I was very excited, of course. Um, I really wanted... You know, it was the first time for me that that I was going to move out of my parents' house, um, have my own independent life, that kind of stuff. But I still had not come out of the closet, so there was that. And and I think in in my head, right, leaving Puerto Rico and coming to a big city, um, I saw it as an opportunity also to to be my true self, right? And, and kind of grow into my own skin. And, and in part, right, um, this is why I feel such an affinity and, and love for Philly and why I call it my home, you know, my second home, my home away from, from the home that, that birthed me, right? Because I grew up and, you know, I grew into myself um, and, and was able to make community despite of all of my identities, um, you know, with, with many people. And that's something that before that I, as a person of color, um, you know, coming from a working class background and that I didn't know was going to be possible. And so I am forever grateful to Philly and, and to Philadelphians for for all of that, for all the love and, and the acceptance. Um, as a scientist, when I, so when I arrived at Penn, I knew that it wasn't a diverse place and it really hadn't hit me that hard. Um, I mean, Penn, the student body, the PhD student body was uh, pretty diverse. We do have a robust, program, uh, diversity and inclusion and recruitment program, um, which is actually how I was able to get to Penn, right? Um, I did an internship the summer before my senior year of undergrad, uh, which I did at the University of Puerto Rico, that was specifically for, you know, uh, candidates underrepresented in the sciences, and that also includes first-generation scientists or first-generation college attendees. Um, so it's like a good mix of people. And, and then through that program, the university ends up being able to recruit a lot of um, scientists from, from backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in sciences. But I, yeah, I never while I was doing that program really didn't think much of it because, you know, when you're doing these like 10 weeks program, you're like 
meeting new friends from all over the country and like meeting cool people and you're kind of focused on that and doing your science. And I was fortunate to have an incredible mentor in the lab that I was doing research that summer. Um, that faculty member ended up being my thesis advisor. Um, not sorry, my um, thesis committee chair. Um, and, you know, and, and that worked out great. But once I started as a student, right, full PhD, I realized that there was a gap. And, and as I did more and more work, um, you know, it started being very apparent, something that people say often, but I was experiencing it, right, for the first time was why am I putting all this labor into making this graduate program much better for people like me, while on top of that, having to meet all my duties as a PhD student and research. And I don't see my white friends doing that. So it started hitting me, me you know, more and more. And I remember when I formed my thesis committee, um, telling my PI, um, which, well, my, my first PI, because I, I switched thesis labs, um, that I wanted a diverse thesis committee. And then when I switched labs, I changed one member. But I am happy to say that my thesis committee included, you know, two people of color, one of those queer or LGBTI, and two women, and only one white man. So I'm really happy about that. And it was a deliberate decision, right? I wanted a thesis committee that would also understand other difficulties because of their lived experiences when they were students, right? Not only the difficulty of being able to do science, but the difficulty of being a woman in science, of being a woman of color in science, of being a queer person in science, of being a man of color in science. And so, um, you know, I, I wanted that as part of my education because fortunately in your PhD, um, we have some sort of freedom to decide how we want to tailor our education. You know, you mentioned uh, that uh, you wanted to ensure you had a diverse uh, 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 thesis committee, uh, which I think is 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 pretty admirable. Um, oftentimes, uh, a lot of uh, scientists of color, uh, when they're conducting their research, either a really don't have the option to have such a a, a diverse cast uh, at your defense, uh, or b um, don't really have a choice. Maybe their their research of interest is pretty narrow, and there's only a few faculty that. Then can really advise on the topic, and these faculty are, you know, while uh, their background may not be similar as yours, uh, their research is, and you're kind of stuck with them for a while. Um, and you mentioned that when you came to Philly, uh, you hadn't uh, come out the closet yet. You know, at what point in your program uh, did you decide? Did you decide to come out? And was there a maybe moment or series of moments that? Uh, uh, made you realize that this was the right time or how did you know that this was the right time to come out? Uh, and, uh, importantly, uh, did, did coming out, you know, uh, 
uh, affect or or make you feel somewhat, um, I guess, uh, uh, discriminated or 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 viewed differently by your peers. Uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, when 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 people come out or they're a little different, uh, different from the rest of the group, they feel like an outsider or they feel like a an other. Um, so when you came out, could you expand a little bit on, uh, why, uh, at what point during your program or when did you know it was the right time to come out? And, um, subsequently, do you feel like you were, uh, uh, did you feel like an, an outsider thereafter or was you, were your peers in your programming or whoever, uh, welcoming of this change and, uh, and looking forward to, you know, this uh, looking forward to to interacting with you uh, uh, in recognizing your new identity. So, um, I knew that I wanted to come out, um, and part of the my right, decision and story of waiting until moving to Philly was to make sure that I was financially independent, right? And unfortunately, it is something that in hindsight, I should not have worried about. Um, But, you know, at the time, and we just see it all too often with LGBTQ individuals, right, that don't get acceptance in their home and and are thrown out. And so I was waiting to, to move to Philly, to be independent in order to be able to do that and, and, and make sure that if, if that were going to happen to me, that it wouldn't have like a devastating, you know, effect on my livelihood. And that's something that, I, of course, at the moment had that privilege of being like, well, I know I got accepted into grad school and that the PhD is paid and they give us a stipend. So I'll be able, you know, to pay my stuff. Um, But that's something that a lot of black and brown, low income, you know, folks don't have. Um, So when I moved to Philly, well, actually before moving to Philly, that summer I was able to do a a trip with my best friend and a group of students from the University of Puerto Rico. And, you know, we went to Europe and to that group was like the first time that I like came out. Um, and it was, you know, I, I didn't feel judged. It just felt great. It was mostly young people and, and it was just so fun. And, and I think that experience because it was so positive, right? And um, helped me gain a little bit more confidence that things were going to be all right, or that at least there were going to be people out there that were going to accept me for who I was and for who I am and and that it's okay to be me. Um, so, So before moving to Philly, my one of my best friends from undergrad was also moving to Philly. 
um, to go to Penn. Uh, and we, we were going to live together. And so I told him and, and a couple of other close friends before we moved to Philly so that he knew, right, that, you know, that we were going to be living together for the next two years and, and that at least for the next two years and that I was going to be, you know, uh, not a different person, but that I was going to live my truth in Philly, which wasn't something that I was able to share with him. Um, and, you know, and he was, he took it so great and, and, and it just paved the way for a wonderful experience. Um, in Philly. And so when I got there, we were, you know, like nothing really ever changed um, for me in that way or in the relationship that we had. If anything, it actually became more honest and, and more of a real friendship um, than it was in undergrad. Yeah. And so for Penn specifically, because there is um, such a good effort um, um and when I say this, I say this about the biomedical graduate school, which is the biomedical PhD school. Um, the dean there, Dr. Arnaldo Diaz, uh, he's also Puerto Rican and he invests, invests a lot in recruiting Latinx and you know underrepresented minorities. There was a group of like eight or nine of us that were coming from different campuses of the University of Puerto Rico, but most of us from Rio Piedras. And so coming to Philly, we already had like a little community and we all knew each other because we were part of um, a research program at our campuses. So, you know, there was there was some sense of community that came with me and with all of us from Puerto Rico to Philly. And so naturally, that was the group that I originally came out to um, and started there and then eventually um I, you know, open up more, but I was actually pretty afraid um, the whole time because the one thing I wanted to do was for me to be able to tell my parents. I didn't want like them learning through someone else. I wanted them to learn from me. So once I told them um, and, and they knew I was, you know, I felt relieved and then it kind of was like, you know what, like from here on, I don't care who hmm. knows or what, like I just, like they're gonna learn and, you know, but my parents know and they're okay with it. They love me. They, you know, they reaffirm that and, and that's it. And, you know, that was a beautiful story. Uh, thank you for sharing it. And what I noticed is that there are a few uh, common themes uh, uh, in, in many of the things you say, such as, you know, financial independence, uh, 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 resources for black and brown people, sense of community and self-doubt, uh, you know, self-doubt, uh, you know, coming out to, to, to your parents or, or um, sense of community with you and fellow uh, uh, Puerto Rican scientists. Uh, black and brown people not having you know access to adequate education and or financial independence, and um, you know a sort of like peeve of mine is, you know, especially at large universities in large urban areas, 
with a high black and brown population, when the sort of student body ratio isn't uh, isn't in proportion to the sort of surrounding community, it, it really begs the, it always begs the question for me. You know why? Why does the university student body not look like the the surrounding community? I mean, for example, uh, 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 HBCUs make up just three percent of the uh, U.S. college universities, but they produce twenty seven percent of all black students with STEM degrees. And you know, this is an 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 an, uh, an over uh, I shouldn't say overrepresentation, but the university uh, uh, degree production is overrepresented uh, relatively. Meanwhile, many universities, uh, uh, even in large urban areas, are are struggling with a lot of uh, uh, black and brown recruitment uh, at their schools. So, you know, I know that uh, you know you really uh, you grew up in Puerto Rico, but lived in Philadelphia. And what I'm wondering is, you know, what are since we're on the topic of common themes, what are some of the common themes uh, uh, that you noticed between uh, growing up, uh, you know, in in and if, the, if, if you think the right word is impoverished, uh, an impoverished community uh, in Puerto Rico, moving to to Philly, do you feel like many of the same you know, problems in education, in scientific research, uh, in representation uh, were present in Philly uh, uh, as it was in Puerto Rico? Or um, uh, do, do you feel like that, that these themes that you mentioned uh, were adopted from your upbringing uh, growing up in a working class family? Yes. Um, I will say, um, not impoverished. I don't want to, um, you know, give that impression. Um, because I certainly don't think that, um, my dad grew up in like deep poverty. Right. And, and that's not like, it's still a dark, a stark contrast between how my brother and I grew up and, um, and my, like my parents themselves, my mom growing up in like public housing and my dad growing up in like the poorest town and like a wooden house check, you know, that didn't even have running water. Um, so, so yeah, so, and I don't know, we make all these distinctions, but, um, you know, we had at every moment throughout my life that I remember, despite the stresses that my parents might have had for having to provide right for their family, um, I always had what what I needed. I will say there is um, there are absolutely common threads and common themes, right? Um, with accessibility. Uh, Puerto Rico itself is a very, um, it's very, the way, the way the government and, and institutions formed in Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico has always been um, very poor or poorer, right, um, than compared to most states and in, in the United States is there was this like thread of community care um, that has always happened. And this is something that, you know, I see it when like the last hurricane, which I don't remember which one it was that I was in Puerto Rico 
my parents were the only one that had of the neighbors that had uh, a small like electrical plant. So the like six, seven houses around us, um, two of the houses, my house had two refrigerators and two of the other houses, we were able to connect the refrigerators with like extension cords from like the other side of the street. Um, and so all the other neighbors in the block basically like took all their food and it was stored in these like four refrigerators within three houses. Right. And, and it, and it tells you, right. Like this is something that was so normal to me that in a way when, um, you know, in the, in the time that we're now that we have people that act so selfishly, it's like, so like in my face that, and, and I just can't believe it. It's like, wait, it's not normal for a lot of people to be like, oh yeah, like you should help your neighbor, right? And like the people that live around you and that make your community and that's just a normal thing. Um, and it came, you know, from little examples like that to other stuff, um, you know, and, and my, the values uh, that my parents grew up with and that they taught me as well. But when it comes to education, in Puerto Rico, education is very, very accessible. And that's because of the University of Puerto Rico. When I went to the University of Puerto Rico, I think the most expensive it was a, a year was not even $1,500 a whole year, right? And so the University of Puerto Rico is the great equalizer, um, in Puerto Rico and why so many people are able to get degrees and, and Puerto Rico has actually um, a really good number of people that get their bachelor's um, degree because of the University of Puerto Rico. And so, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter if you came from, you know, if you went to public school, if you went to private school, um, when you get to the University of Puerto Rico, Right, you all go in, and and the system is by far the best too in the island, much better than the uh, private universities. So, so there is like that push, you know, for like students that go to like elite uh, private schools and students that come from public and like more rural and poorer parts of Puerto Rico that then end up going into University of Puerto Rico and receive the the same education. And so that is something that doesn't exist here. So the University of Puerto Rico itself represents Puerto Rico more than like these other elite universities that we have in this country, because those universities here, like the Ivy Leagues, were created by rich people, for rich people, and for their kids, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so, you know, there is, in Philly specifically, um, Penn, Penn has behaved extremely problematic in many ways. Um, Penn is one of two Ivy Leagues that doesn't pay pilots, for example, payments in lieu of taxes. Because the university is a nonprofit, they are tax exempt, but um, be, you know they're tax exempt, they're even property tax exempt. But the University of Pennsylvania is also the largest property owner in the city of Philadelphia, which is the fifth largest city. Um, and I believe actually sixth by population now, largest city. And it is the poorest of the largest cities in the country, 
right? Um, and it is overwhelmingly a black and brown um, city. Um, so it tells you, right, like there's, there's a really clear distinction. And so the university itself, um, you know, there's been a push for them to to pay into these like payments in lieu of taxes, which is just for, you know, for the city, for services and whatnot, because even commercial properties that they own, that they lease to like stores because it's owned by the University of Pennsylvania, even though it is commercial. And let's say there's actually an urban outfitters on campus, <laughs> right? Like that, because that building is owned by the university, it doesn't pay property taxes. And uh, uh, let me let me sort of um, uh, follow up with that a little bit, because you know you mentioned that <clears throat> education is the great equalizer in in in, in Puerto Rico, uh, and that uh, this university system, uh, in many ways, is more accessible uh, for its citizens. And uh, you know, at the same time, uh, you mentioned you know UPenn and they're they're sort of tax exempt. Uh, nature while having a large endowment and uh, being one of the largest landowners uh, or the largest landowner in, in Philly. Now that's, that's the sort of struggle for, for black and brown, uh, for young black and brown students who want to enter STEM or, or black scientists, uh, black and brown scientists who want to enter and stay in STEM, you know, over the past, you know, uh, several years, there's been a, a an attrition of black, black and brown scientists entering as undergraduates you know, in, in some science topic, but then eventually leaving the field and doing something else. Uh, and there's even uh, a less representation in the job market, where sort of the higher you go in, in these companies or elsewhere, the more and more of an one you feel like. And I think that uh, the root of the problem uh, has a lot to do with, with access to education. Uh, and American universities, as you say, uh, you know, have, have a long history of, of, uh, of, uh, challenges with this i mean uh you know harvard's class of 2021 for example is is 30 percent you know legacy students you know and these are students that you know their parents or grandparents or whoever you know attended harvard before them you know and that's how in many ways that's how these universities establish these dynasties of donors um and so uh what do you think um you know what are sort of the, the the qualities within the 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 and sort of my my experience with this as well. Let me sort of get into that. You know, I went to public school uh, growing up, so I grew up in a in a pretty poor neighborhood in Brooklyn. And uh, you know, my mother. So I grew up with a single mother, uh, and she was always very adamant with you know making sure we're in school for as long as possible. And uh, for, for many sort of uh, poor households, school is not only a place for your for your kids to get an education, but it's also a place for them to be safe. And it's also a place to keep them off the streets and also a place to, uh, uh, you know, babysit, really. Uh, and you know, it's because of these, you know, after school programs and extracurricular activities and these sort of enrichment programs that, you know, kept a lot of these, these kids in the projects uh, in school for as long as possible and was in that way was very accessible and serve the role as a, uh, a, a transformer of your social economic status. And that's what I think school really should be. Um, so, you know, uh, where are some of the, I guess, and this could be the sort of last question on, on education and stuff. 
where uh, where are some of the weaknesses you think in universities or even uh, public or private school systems, whichever you like? Where are some of the weak weaknesses you think in uh, uh, the weaknesses in, re in recruiting uh, you know black and brown young people into the sciences and uh, uh, can we learn from the from the from the uh, Puerto Rican uh, education system uh, to increase accessibility of of these programs for for uh, young minorities? I mean, I, you mentioned a lot of really important things that um, perhaps I, I can be a little bit more clear to on, on my end and my background. Um, but for, you know, education should be accessible, period. And, and more than just, you, right, education being a tool for people to be able to, I guess, in a way, right, sounded to me like, like the American dream, right, to be able to climb out of poverty and like, you know, make, make a life for themselves, it should be a tool for freedom, right? And, and being financially stable allows people to have that freedom. And so education should be transformative, um, and, and, and leveraged and used as a tool for freedom. I don't think many people see it that way, but in Puerto Rico, it is exactly what it is, right? Um, the accessibility it has, for example, um, I mentioned, right, that the most expensive year was probably not even $1,500, one whole year. But because of my parents' income, I qualify for the federal Pell Grant which back then was $5,500 a year. So I not only went to college for free, right? I had some leftover money to pay for gas to be able to drive from my parents' house to university, to buy all my books, to have some money to buy food um, while on campus and whatnot. And and because of that, and because I lived at my parents and they were, you know, at the time stable enough, I never had to work a job while studying, right? Even though eventually that became research because I got a fellowship and I was, you know, putting 20, 25 hours a week on top of going to school, doing research. Um, and that also, you know, gave me some financial stability that, you know, my parents, because my mom works in a school, there's no income in the summer. And a couple of summers, that money that I was making that was like in my own bank account is what my dad used to pay the mortgage, right? And, and so there were all of those dynamics that are very real and, and even more, um, you know, even more marked with, with many people that, that grow up in in right in a big city or or in the United States right and so that accessibility to education made so many other things uh, easier for for me right and and for my parents as well as you know providers um, I think that. Definitely the United States 
can learn about the University of Puerto Rico and, and how it is. Um, but we can also look back to examples that, that we had, that the United States had and in the states themselves, right? Public uh, universities were pretty inexpensive 30 years ago, 40 years ago, right? And that was a model. And that's why the baby boomers are able to have all this wealth because they didn't have loans or their loans were like minimal, right? Like, uh, like not, you know, half of whatever, like almost nothing compared to what millennials and, and Gen Zs actually have in loans. And, and even the University of California system, which used still right now is very inexpensive compared to like other universities, but used to be even way cheaper um, in the 90s and 80s, right? So it's just a matter of prioritizing education and, and seeing it that way. And unfortunately, um, our politics aren't allowing for that nowadays because our politics is mostly controlled by the ultra-rich. Um, yeah, I mean, we have an so education yeah. secretary who's trying to give our, our tax money to private schools and private religious schools. Exactly. You know, this... Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, uh, you know, agree on on pretty much everything you said. Um, and, you know, again, you know, education is supposed to be an engine for socioeconomic mobility. Uh, and and for many poor communities, it's really the, the, the only way to, it's a really the only way out uh, into a better life. And so when there's mm-hmm. not equal accessibility to quality education, this creates a lot of the, uh, you know, disproportionate everything uh, that we see. Uh, in a lot of New York City public schools, for example, you know, so I went to New York City public schools, and, um, you know, in in many ways, this uh, this can uh, 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 many of the things you said can 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 inform my experiences as well, uh, where we often didn't have access to you know graduate level science teachers. Uh, or up-to-date uh, laboratory equipment for uh, for the lab class. Oftentimes, the teachers didn't even have chalk <laughs> to write on the board. They had to buy their own. Uh, right. And it, it, this comes from uh, uh, not only a lack of support for public schools from the state and city, but also lack of support for teachers as well. You know, when we when we can afford to give you know tanks and machine guns to local police to quiet some protesters, but Teachers have to buy their own books and supplies for their students uh, when they already ain't pay that much. Uh, I think we, we we have to readjust our priorities. Um, right. And I mean, and in Puerto Rico, when you have a government that deliberately does not disseminate aid and food and water to people that lost everything, yeah. you know, in the aftermath of a hurricane, yeah. but they are able to mobilize um, the police and this like heavily militarized police to protect the governor when there's protests, right? It, it's like you see it when, you know, the former secretary of education in Puerto Rico, who is now indicted and convicted by the FBI for um, misusing federal funds and giving it to her friends, who is actually from Philadelphia and went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, um, or went to Penn. I don't know if it was Wharton specifically, but she went to Penn. Um, and, and part of their 
you know, their austerity measures was, well, we need to close 300 public schools. So kids that already was very hard for them to even get to school, right? Um, now have to figure out a way to travel an hour or more to get to the closest school to learn, right? And, and, and to me, that's just criminal. Yeah, and certainly, and and the data shows this where uh, you know the farther you have to travel for school or to work, the on on average, the poorer you are. Everybody wants to live close to work, and there are studies that show your commute you know kills you; it gives you anxiety. Uh, you're more prone to heart disease for long long commutes. Uh, but individuals living you know far away from their school or far away from their work and have to take public transit uh, in order to get to work. Um, uh, uh, more, more, more individuals uh, 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 live further from work and have to travel further just to you know get the same paycheck as individuals who live really close to their jobs, uh, and you know that's what advocates for a public transit system. Uh, but I kind of want to switch gears here because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, you know, running as a millennial. Uh, so I mentioned uh, early on that millennials, I think, you know, will is leading this country now, and we're sort of the up and coming generation. And um, and just to sort of uh, 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 go over a few things here, you know, you ran for a city council in in 2019, and you have some impressive uh, impressive numbers. You know, 35,000 votes running against 20, 28 candidates, and and you can just correct me if any of these numbers are wrong. Uh, 35,000 votes, uh, 28 candidates raised 33 grand, uh, got in seventh place, uh, but was but was number one in, uh, uh, on the election ballot uh, in, in terms of the order, which was an awesome draw. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Philly City Council you know, existed in some form in this country since its founding. Uh, but it really it wasn't until 1951 that the Home Rule Charter, Charter established the council as the legislative arm of the Philadelphia municipal government. Uh, and even uh, in, in, you know, the, the sort of makeup of the uh, Philadelphia um, city council is, you know, you have an educator, a realtor, lawyers, a journalist, uh, but no scientist. And, you know, even the uh, average age of Congress, the 116th Congress, I think is uh, you know, 57 to 60 years old, you know, most of whom are, politicians, career politicians, lawyers, teachers. Uh, and, you know, as the youngest candidate, you know, vying for the city council seat, city council at large, you know, and I believe young candidates should be on and engaged at all times. Uh, I like to think that our generation is in some way uniquely positioned to, to, to win these seats and, and to at least, uh, uh, enact change at the grassroots level more rapidly and more readily than our previous generations. And um, my question to you is, you know, uh, what edge do you think millennials have over our previous generations that that uh, allow us to, I guess, mobilize faster than previous generations or raise money faster or do things differently than our previous generation? Like, for example, you know, the use of technology. You know, against your over against your older opponents, uh, AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you know, one one of the greatest of all time. Uh, you know, she had a powerhouse social media campaign uh, that her opponents just didn't have. Her older her older congressional opponents is the reason why she beat out the second most powerful Democrat in the House. 
it's because she knew social media and she still uses it today and that clap back as well uh i gotta love it but um but uh, uh uh i think that her use of social media and technology gave her the edge to allow her to mobilize faster and to win that seat so my question to you it's it's more of an opinion question do you do you think millennials have had this technology edge over our previous sort of uh, uh, over older generations? Uh, And if not, uh, what sort of characteristics of this up and coming generation do you think uh, have that can, uh, that can sort of change the way things are done uh, uh, in the future? Um, I want to clarify, uh, we, my campaign ended up raising, um, closer to 50,000 at the end. So that was like the, the, but yes, I remember, I think you saw that from like a tweet or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I remember cause we had like, it was right after that, that we were able to fundraise more. And we can talk about that on another podcast or, or yeah. one-on-one conversation. Money out of politics. Yeah, um, we, we can talk about that at another point. But um we do have a social media edge um as as millennials as young people um, because we you know we grew up with social media we know how it works and we know how to appeal and you know bring people into the mix using social media but it is not something that's just like oh, it benefits millennials and it doesn't anyone else because all these other candidates that are older, like they realized how important, they realize how important social media is now and doing what we call digital, right? Digital campaigns is to campaigns, right? And so they have millennials that work on their campaigns or that they hire through other firms and whatnot that do this type of work that then run it. Um, so, so in essence, in order to have, like AOC was able to have a good social media campaign because she was able to fundraise um, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I had a very limited social media campaign that would have probably put me over the top because the difference was less than 1.5% um, between me and the fifth place um, which, you know, in our election, the top five vote getters got into council or, or passed the Democratic primary. And so. Uh, wait, you are know, you saying that you were only 1.5% away from getting into the top five? One, one, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's razor thin. And yeah, and, and in an election where it was like um, 28 people, yeah. right? It, it gets a little saturated and if you don't have wealth right or access to wealth and wealthy uh, networks then it's going to be even harder for you to raise money like if you in order to raise you you know it's like the chicken and the egg when it comes to politics is you need money for other people to trust that you're going to do well and for them to give you their money right and so if, if you come from a background like mine, where my network was mostly scientists who are not great at giving um, to campaigns um, and who, who should be much better about 
getting involved in politics because science is political, but not partisan. Um, you know, it, it was hard. It was just hard to fundraise. And, and you mentioned drawing the first ballot. The first ballot position was what made it, um, gave me that sort of credibility where I was, um, I didn't need to have hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, um, I had the first ballot position. So now I just needed the endorsements. I will say 65% of my fundraising was, um, according to this group that does research on all candidates and whatnot, um, was low dollar donations. And they consider anything that's 250 and below low. And I, you know, I did not meet a single PhD student that, or, you know, or student or, or Philly Ricans from North Philly that live in, you know, in North Philly is one of the poorest neighborhoods in the entire city that were able to just drop $250, Mm. right? Like the majority of my donations were $50 or less. So we had a lot of people that were invested and that were interested and, and wanted to contribute. We just didn't have the ability right to to raise like hundreds of thousands of dollars and and i did you know one of the candidates that came after me raised over half a million dollars and the one that was right above me on in sixth place raised like four hundred thousand dollars right so we're talking the top five raised over a hundred thousand dollars so we're talking that there was a big disparity and and we were really close and i think right Going back to your question, this is something that I do as a community organizer. I love talking. Uh, And you can love to hear you talk. It's fun. Um, But circling back to your question, I think the edge came more because us as young people, we, we have seen and keep seeing how the system doesn't work for us. And, and in my case, right, being someone with so many, um, you know, intersections in my identity, I was able to connect with very different communities, right? Philly has never elected um, an openly out council member, um, which a lot of publications will tell you, you know, um, or groups will tell you, if you're not openly out, like, you know, then the city has never elected an, you know, an LGBTQ person or LGBTI person. Um, up until this election, actually two millennials won, both of them very entrenched within the party. And, and, the, and the youngest of the two of them had run twice before. Um, and, you know, only one Latinx person is in council and it's a district seat in a city that is 17% Latinx um, and no scientists, right? And so there were a lot of intersections, right? That, that I was, because of who I am, where I come from, how I grew up, that I was able to speak at. And that's something that um, is in a way forced upon us as people of color coming from poor or working class backgrounds into institutions like the University of Pennsylvania that are very elite is we learn, right? Um, 
amongst us, we call it code switching, right? But we learn how to walk those uh, lines of differences, right? And, and whatnot, and how to navigate that because it is crucial and essential for our livelihood and for our success, right? And so that is something that I was able to leverage um, on my run, right? And connect with the LGBTQ community, which tends um, to be a little bit more, at least in Philly, a little bit more wealthier. But then when I went to North Philly, which, you know, has the big Puerto Rican neighborhood, and then mostly, it's mostly Black and Puerto Rican and, and Latinx, but that chunk is heavily Puerto Rican. Um, you know, go in there and and go in as like, I'm the youngest one. I'm the only person with a doctorate degree, right, running. And these people see me as, well, you came from Puerto Rico and you did your PhD here. Like, you're not like us, right? And it takes having those conversations of like, I I understand that and and this is my story, right? And And having them understand that had I grown up the same way I grew up in Puerto Rico, but in Philly, like I would have grown up in North Philly, right? Or I would have grown up in Trenton. And, you know, and it's not that money-wise, socioeconomic-wise, my aunts and uncles and my parents were different. It's just that in Puerto Rico, money gets you a little bit more, plus there's all this accessibility through education, that the people here don't have, right? And that's something that I spoke a lot about. It's like, I understand where you're coming from, but I want you to know that when I look around here, what I see is kids that could be my neighbors, that could be my little siblings, right? That are growing up in the same way that I grew up, right? And don't have the opportunities I have. And that's why I want to do this because I want to, I want to fight so that children like me, your children, right, have the same opportunities or better opportunities than I had. And I, and I always told them, it's like, you know, I think it is messed up. And, and I understand you because I think it is messed up that I had these opportunities because I didn't grow up in Philly and your kids that grow up here don't have the same opportunities I had. And that's what I want to fight. And that's why I want to listen to you, right? And then it, we were able to have a more honest conversation. And and, and people sense that, right? And I think our generation is very empathetic and and in tune with with communities and and we have more of a community approach to life and and people are able, voters especially, right? But people in general are able to see that um resonate with that because they sense it right they see you being honest and they sense that you're being honest and and then the rest of the time was just listening right to people because especially for our communities is showing up like candidates don't show up there unless the candidates were from there they they just wouldn't go because they know north philly doesn't vote right and and i knew i needed the whole city and i did okay and pretty well in some areas of the city but in the areas that i did the best where i got the most votes over other people was in areas where candidates generally didn't go to right because i showed up and i talked to them and i told them like look like um 
all these issues and like these are my plans to actually answer those questions right i'm a scientist so I, to answer those questions right to find answers to all of these questions and 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 issues that, that we are facing as a city and as a community you're talking about philly and you know i love philly it's a beautiful city uh and and but and, and new york shares a lot of these characteristics i mean you know, to as you say, uh, we gotta get money out of politics, and I agree with this. Uh, but but there's the chicken and the egg problem. We want young people up in these seats, but they don't have money, they don't have job experience, and uh, and you know they don't have any savings unless their parents are rich and 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 they're helping them out. So, or you're some kind of like you know Silicon Valley tech millionaire or something. And you know, in in New York, you know, to, to win a congressional seat in New York is easily you know, did, I don't want this to sort of coming come off the wrong way, but to to win a seat in New York is easily like a one fifty k two hundred k proposition because mm-hmm. you when you when you break it down per vote per dollar amount you're paying like more money per square area in New York because more people live in a per square area. Right. So you know, not all congressional seats or 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 uh, uh, city council seats or whatever are 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 going to sort of quote unquote cost the same. I'm not saying you buy seats, but I am saying that to run costs money. Right. And, right. you know, you gotta invest. Uh, you're definitely thinking about it in the, in the right way, at least mathematically. Right. It's like in order to get voters, you have to get your message out and that costs money because people won't know about you if you don't, you know, send information their way. And, and in order to do that, you need to have money. You want to send stuff in the mail you need to have money, right? Like all of these things cost money. And then there um, are the inherent advantages of the incumbent as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which we can get into, but, you know, at least on the federal level incumbents, you know, they can send free, free and limited mail. Uh, I think it's unlimited, but they can send free mail. Uh, and oftentimes the incumbents use this, this benefit to send their own campaign you know, information out there, you know, kind of like what Donald Trump did with, with his little letter that he sent to everybody that he's given you $1,200 relief. Uh, and every, you know, American received that, uh, it was really just his way of campaigning. But, uh, when you're not supposed to do that, but, uh, you know, and, you know, in New York, you were talking about code switching. And when you mentioned, um, uh, you know, you, you, you were raised in Puerto Rico, but you're the only one with a PhD quote unquote, you're not like us. Were these like uh, fellow, you know, uh, American born Puerto Ricans telling you this uh, in Philly? And um, uh, or, or was it like more broadly, uh, more broadly in other communities? I think it's more a sentiment that runs deeply in U.S. American culture of, of what is American, what is us. Um, Philly, you know, Philly is very, um, there's this like running joke because they call it, um, Philly, it's its own nation, right? And, and there's a lot of people that are like, um, Philadelphia nationalists. And I don't want to, I don't want to use that word because I know that word has Mm -hmm. very, well, they, they got a lot of pride, and and but but you know some some people um, older voters and not like you know it's something that 
I think people use this as a litmus test, right? But I think after having a conversation, things changed. Um, but some people would ask me like, oh, where did you go to school, right? Because that's their way of asking you, are you actually from Philly? Are you elitist? You know, are you one of these... Uh, uh, Gentrifiers, yeah. right? That's coming in. And, and I also, you know, which which was something that I never really... I guess experience or thought much um, is that I'm a light skinned Latino and walking around, like I'm not necessarily perceived as a person of color. Not that I'm like, you know, super fair with blonde hair or anything like that. But, um, you know, there was also that aspect of privilege that has been part of my existence this has been something to navigate as well and so with puerto ricans in philly that really didn't happen that much just because i think um you know there is a lot of muscle memory from you know the people whose grandparents came right is like and there is a lot of pride in puerto rico and because we often especially in the political realm and especially in philly don't see other Puerto Ricans or Latinx like running and being in office, there was more of a sense of pride, right? Like oftentimes when I talk to, when I was getting my signatures to appear on the ballot, there's this Puerto Rican bakery in North Philly that I would go to for like an hour or two um, because in the mornings it's like a hundred people like in the line going and leaving and going, going and leaving, you know? Um, and the owner is actually from the same hometown that I am in Puerto Rico. And she was like, oh yeah, you can do that here. You know, as long as you're not like distracting them from ordering, like, you know, it's fine. You can be in here and do it. Um, and most people were like, I would give them like a piece of literature and they would see it and they'd be like, give me that. I'm going to sign. Like you got my vote, you know, because, <laughs> because in a way, right. I'm not saying that that is the correct thing to do, right. People should be informed, uh, informed and paying attention. But, but the literature in a way did that, right. Like they were able to see what the key points of my campaign were, what I was fighting for. Um, and that was enough for them to be like, this person looks like me, Right is is part of this community i don't see myself but i can see myself in this person and they're trying to do this why not i'll give you and right. i think um if i may uh i i think that you know that sort of recognition from your community is really one of those edges we were talking about uh uh they recognized you as as, as one of their own and you know, I, I have some of my, uh, you know, personal experience with this, um, you know, so, so, so I'm from, so I'm from Brooklyn, you know, born and raised and, but my family, you know, they immigrated to the U S from, not from India, no, but they immigrated from Guyana and Trinidad in the Caribbean. And what a lot of people don't know is, you know, during the Atlantic slave trade, when the British were still having slaves, uh, you know, they brought a lot of Indians from India to the West Indies to, you know, pick cotton and, and you know, be slaves. Uh, and it wasn't until the, and, and, you know, this is how my family ended up, ended up in the West Indies. And it wasn't until the, until the 1830s did, you know, the British outlaw slavery 
But what came after that was indentured servitude, which is basically the same thing. Uh, and it wasn't until the 1860s that you know the U.S. Uh, outlawed slavery, but of course that didn't solve everything. Uh, and so, you know, in in Guyana and Trinidad, what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, if you look at the sort of uh, House of Commons, I guess, you know, you'll see you'll see two primary you know types of people. You'll see Indo-Guyanese people from India, and you'll see Afro-Guyanese people from Africa. And and the House of Commons oftentimes is split by identity like that. But if I would ever go to India and tell them I'm from Guyana, uh, that identity doesn't really click with 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 Indians from India. And so, you know, if I would go to, let's say, Jackson Heights in Queens, for example, which is a large Indian neighborhood in New York City and, you know, enter these restaurants, I can't speak Hindi, can't speak Urdu. Uh, you know, I'm I'm from Brooklyn. I got New York, I got like a New York accent, and I'm and I'm Guyanese and Trinidadian. All these sort of uh, identities that I also carry uh, don't really you know click with that particular community in my in my experience. However, you know when when I go to Flatbush in Brooklyn, like around the Ninth Congressional District, you know eighty seven, you know the highest concentration of Black Americans in the U.S. is in New York City, and the highest concentration of that is is a uh, you know two mile radius area in in the heart of Brooklyn between Flatbush and Midwood, and eighty seven percent of that is you know Black Americans from from the West Indies. So we're talking Haiti, Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, uh, uh, and, and elsewhere in uh, smaller islands. And it's always there where I felt you know more at home because of the food, the music, the you know West Indian accent. And I find myself also kind of code switching when I'm in, when I'm in this community because I know what to order when I go to these restaurants. I know uh, the difference between the spices. I know, uh, you know, I can name my parents, you know, music that they used to listen to in the 1970s, old Caribbean music. And you know, I think that uh, uh, I think that that sort of identity that that you carry. Um, was really a, a, a big galvanizer uh, for for support from from these communities that you were trying to access, and I think it's something to be proud of. Uh, uh, always, um, and uh, if there's one more thing that we can cover, it'll only take a couple more minutes. Um, it's 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 uh, racism in science, uh, and I know we can go on and on about that, but. Um, I just want to touch on it because, you know, I noticed on your Twitter feed, you posted an article, uh, a 2020 article from UC Boulder, uh, making claims that, you know, Puerto Rico was better, made better by colonization. I know this is something you're very passionate about, but I think this conversation, it can benefit, you know, the minorities in STEM more broadly because of the language used in scientific papers around, you know, uh, black and brown health, black and brown, black and brown health outcomes, uh, Puerto Rican health outcomes, and science has a long history of sort of linking health disparity to your skin color. Uh, and we know that you know there is no disease that, uh, at least the disease that they characterize in these papers, that is linked to your skin color. You know, oftentimes when we talk about, or not we, but when some papers talk about, uh, you know, black. Uh, propensity for diabetes or heart disease or 
you know, cancer or whatever, they often say that, you know, black, uh, black individuals are more prone to these, these, these disease because, you know, of their history with the, you know, high salt content from the Atlantic slave trade or, you know, blackness is a risk factor for getting diabetes or getting cancer or whatever. And I've never really felt like that was the right language to, to describe risk for disease. You are at risk because you're, you're black. And I feel like, uh, you know, and, and you're welcome to jump at any time, but I feel like, uh, this paper that you uh, described on your Twitter feed that, you know, <laughs> using height as a metric, uh, for, for health outcomes in, in what is a, 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 a colonized community, uh, if there was even, I feel like if there was even one Puerto Rican on that paper or in that lab, either A, that paper would have never come out or B, uh, it would be a completely different kind of paper. Um, could you maybe expand on your feelings about science that um, characterizes people of color in this way? So that that paper that you're referencing is heavily based on eugenics, right? And which we know, right, traditionally, um, science is, is a very white and male dominated field. And there were all these theories and, and studies that were racist in nature, that were done not at the best scientific rigor, but in order to explain and not explain, but provide, um, you know, an excuse for people to be racist and discriminatory. Um, and it's just, you know, this one was really striking to see because it is 2020. The author never, like, you know, did not cite all the sources that were cited were Anglo-Saxon sources while studying a population that is not Anglo-Saxon, right? Like, you can already understand where, like, this is coming from. And it was just, you know, mind-blowing because Elsevier is, is the publisher, right? And, and they publish so much science and, 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 you know, all types of science, STEM and non-STEM sciences. And I was just like, do these people not check, right? And, and so... I was very taken aback by, a, you know, this type of study being published, um, you know, there and, and, or in one of their journals, because I think what the article was trying to say is, you know, without actually saying is colonization was good for Puerto Rico because Puerto Ricans grew up on average 4.2 centimeters taller than other Latinx and Caribbean folks. Um, also using data from, like I said, white Anglo-Saxon sources from the 1900s, um, but also the rigor of how this data was examined back then was not the same, like with the statistical analysis and like there's no, you know, talk or nuance about that and then like a complete disregard for like imperialism and occupation right and and what that did to the people of puerto rico 
and you know and, and it's it was just it was a mess right and i was just like this is like not scientific rigor why is this a thing and i will not say uh the author nor the name of the sure. paper because i do not want to give them more sure. press or time that they need but yes but this happens right and 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 black and brown people are not strangers to to this type of racist publication that is put out there in order to justify discrimination and racist behaviors against us against our communities and and you hit on a really good point because you know um when you mention oh if you're black then you know it's like basically the way the language has often worked right is that if you're black or if you're a person of color you basically have a pre-existing condition yeah. and that's 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 how it's put and and people often fail to understand is it's not because of the color of our skin because there's actually and we can talk about this a little um right how the genetics of pigment color work right um are very different and doesn't matter what my skin shows i could be closer genetically to a person whose skin color is completely different than mine then i can be genetically right to a person that shows this a very similar skin tone right but we see that right when when we look at race we see color we don't think about how the genetic component is which in a way would be more accurate but but what should be part of this conversation right to circle back is that black and brown people have for hundreds of years right for centuries now had a lack of access to healthcare and to resources for multiple reasons because colonialism and imperialism basically stole the resources from from these people and then you know were brought uh you know were enslaved and brought to places that weren't where where they you know uh were from and and then put into poverty and pushed into deep poverty and you know for forever basically and so that is a better explanation as to why black and brown people right have you know more um of a chance of being you know of certain diseases it's because of generations of inequality because of generations of access to healthcare because like when people don't have access to just food right like how are they going to be healthy and then that trickles down to to your entire body and to your entire being right you're going to buy what's accessible to you um and this was a problem also that i talked a lot about in my campaign right like I'm going to go back to North Philly. People in North Philly, there's barely any supermarkets. Like where do you expect people to buy food, right? And even the corner stores have a very limited and a lot of the time is processed food, right? So when you look at Latinx and I know this being Puerto Rican and you know, I am more predisposed to developing diabetes, um which, you know, people in my family have after, you know, when they turn 55 or whatever. um because 
in my family for generations, there's been a lack of access to foods that are low in sugar, right? And, and so it's a systemic thing, and it's it's an effect of multiple causes and causes and things that have been happening for generations and for centuries. And this is something, uh, and there's so much body of literature devoted to the effect of chronic stress, chronic hunger, chronic anxiety uh, on your health outcomes. And, you know, when people and, and scientists or whoever link your health outcomes to your skin color, they usually ignore the fact that, well, I'm prone to heart disease probably because, you know, I'm discriminated against or, you know, I'm, I'm isolated. I've been, you know, I'm harassed by the cops or I am, you know, living in a poor community, as you say, with, you know, uh, with no access to decent uh, food, fresh food or, or healthcare. And these are better determinants of health outcomes than mm -hmm. the color of your skin. And so whenever these papers come out, they always, they, they, they affect me deeply because they never ever bring up the fact that, well, you know, you're prone to heart disease because, you know, we ha we're having the greatest civil rights movement of our generation and a, 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 a black man was murdered by a cop and there are no repercussions. This is why I'm stressed out, not because of the color of my skin. Uh, and importantly, this data uh, that this paper um, based its 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 work on you know, from uh, is from papers from the 1900s, a time where there wasn't reliable paperwork. I mean, they mm -hmm. they would take people from their homeland, say, "Here, their jobs on this boat. Get on this boat. Just put take your thumb, put it on this paper, make make a little print mark, and get on the boat, and you're leaving." And and these people oftentimes don't understand what they're signing up for, uh, uh, where they're going and why or what these numbers mean. There is no check on this system and a system that's already uh, inclined to, 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 to fudge the outcome anyway. Uh, and I think that all of this invalidates any argument that <laughs> PR or uh, Puerto Rico or anywhere else is better because of colonization. I think it's complete nonsense. Um, <laughs> so uh, how do people uh, get in touch with you on social media? Yeah, feel free to follow me on my social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adrian Rivera PhD, Adrian Rivera PhD. Um, and also, if you're interested in community organizing and, and what's going on in Philly, um, feel free to check uh, one of the groups I help create um, called Philly Boricuas. And we actually just recently had a really big win. Um, we partner with environmental groups in Philly and, and the Philly suburbs and other counties in New Jersey and in trying to stop the... Delaware River Basin Commission from awarding permits to transport liquefied natural gas through Philly, um, specifically through North Philly by rail, um, of course, affecting majority black and brown communities that are um, in poverty or working class. And uh, it was yeah. really, really exciting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 
any anything you want to say to to wrap this up any hopeful words for our audience change does come from the bottom um, we have the number and powers but change can come from anywhere and i know that us and our generation understands that and so we're going to fight so that there's systemic change at every single level and so don't lose sight of you know the world and and the society that that we can have um, because we at the very least deserve that and it is very possible to have that the possibilities are within us so keep on keep on the good fight and you know stay at it Adrian, it was uh, such a pleasure talking to you as always. Uh, let's be sure to do this again sometime uh, in the near future. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Thoughts, Science and Social Justice. If you love this podcast, be sure to give it five stars or 10 stars on whatever platform you're listening on. If it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a comment, let us know how we can improve or shoot us an email at deepthoughtsinterview at gmail.com. If you want to be a guest on a future episode or if you want to leave some feedback, be sure to follow the Instagram as well for all updates. I post every single day at Deep Thoughts Podcast on Instagram. That's deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on Instagram. You can DM us there for any updates or if you want to be a guest on a future episode we have a long list of scientists law experts civil rights activists singer songwriters coming up on future episodes so be sure to stay tuned